Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. My co-host Grace Wan is off for the night, but she'll be back in two weeks for our next live show. But tonight we'll be talking about how farms and state policymakers can tackle the environmental concerns associated with the California dairy industry. And then later you'll hear my interview with veteran San Francisco firefighter Jim Lee about San Francisco's retooled First Responder Museum. But first, November's ballot has two propositions to legalize sports betting. Now, propositions are often confusing anyway because they're worded often in misleading ways with double negatives, contradictions, and all sorts of spin. But now having two propositions around the same issue makes things even more confusing for states' voters. So joining us to help make sense of these two propositions to legalize sports betting is the political enterprise reporter for the Sacramento Bee, Ari Plotka. Welcome to State of the Bay, Ari. Hi, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me. So, Ari, first of all, why is there all this interest all of a sudden in legalizing sports betting now? Well, it has been going on for a couple of years, um, ever since a Supreme Court decision back in 2018 opened the door for this. A lot of other states have legalized sports betting in different forms. Um, and this was actually on the ballot in the form of a proposition in California back in 2020. So it's not entirely new, but there is a really big opportunity to make a lot of money here. California is such a big market. And um in particular for, you know, private betting companies that people are probably very familiar with if they watch sports like DraftKings and FanDuel and MGM, Um, they would love to come into California and offer sports betting. Well, you mentioned these commercials. So, I mean, isn't online sports betting already happening anyway in California? It's definitely happening in a black market form, but it's not legal. So you can't open up an app and make place of bet on, say, a Lakers versus Warriors game or something. But and you can't go into a casino and place a bet on sports. So that's what this is about. So the Californians who are watching those ads. It's not, it's not legally directed at them. Is that right? I'm sorry. <laughs> legal. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I guess what I mean is that we're, you can see ads for sports betting if you're in mm-hmm. California, but you can't actually do it, right? Right, right. Yeah, Californians don't have access to legal sports betting as of yet. And it, right now it's a you know a battle between having it um, be dominated online by private companies or for tribes, uh, California's Native American tribes, to continue their domination of California's current gambling industry. Yeah, so let's talk about those and, and and a little bit about these two propositions here. So let's let's start with Prop 26. It comes first in the numerical order here. So it's the California Sports Wagering Regulation and Unlawful Gambling Enforcement Act. Can you explain a little bit about Prop 26 and, and what it's seeking to do here? Yeah, sure. I mean, Prop 26 is, uh, would legalize in-person sports betting at tribal casinos um, as well as at uh, horse uh, horse racing centers, um, horse racetracks, sorry, in California. And um, yeah, it would really, it would continue to benefit the tribes um, who, con- who currently operate casinos in California. There's about 64 of tribal operated casinos um, by 
some of the 110 federally recognized tribes, it's currently about an eight to $9 billion industry. So this is, this would be sort of their first step in entering the sports betting market market. And it would mean that you could drive to the closest tribal casino and place a bet on a game. And what's in it for the rest of Californians who you know aren't a member of a tribe or wouldn't work or or bet in this industry? What what do what do the rest of Californians get out of Prop Twenty Six if it passed? Well, tribes when they they would basically have to negotiate compacts with the state government um, that would generate a certain amount of revenue to the state. It seems like most of that revenue would pay for the costs of regulation, but what is left over, um, you know, potentially in the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds would go into the state's general fund um, for, you know, all kinds of state programs. Okay, so not necessarily earmarked for anything then, other than, as you said, covering the regulatory cost of the uh, of the initiative. Well, let's talk then about Prop 27, which is called the California Solutions to Homelessness and Mental Health Act. What is Prop 27 trying to do? Yeah, Prop 27 is an effort by, uh, like I said, private um, sports gambling companies, national companies um, like DraftKings, FanDuel, MGM that want to create an online sports betting market in California. So that would legalize, you know, all forms of online sports betting. They would have to partner with tribes, with a tribe. Um, Each company that does this would have to partner with a tribe. So um, there's that. But this is uh, this could generate, you know, several billion dollars in revenue for them. And then 10% of that revenue would be taxed, um, unlike Prop 26. So uh, it's very Orwellian, the way it's named, the California Solutions to Homelessness and Mental Health Act. It doesn't say anything about about gaming, but they're working with tribes, as you mentioned. So where are the tribes on Prop 27 when they've got their own initiative, it sounds like, with Prop 26? Right. So 50, a coalition of about 50 tribes support Prop 26. That's the one that would legalize in-person sports betting at tribal casinos. And about and three tribes support Prop 27. Um, and these are tribes that are in more rural parts of the state. They have casinos, but that they don't get a lot of foot traffic. And actually, the federal government has opposed their ability to offer um, Las Vegas-style games. So they're hoping that this can be a way for them to get a cut of the share of some of this enormous revenue that other tribes have seen. Um, But as the system currently exists, there is a revenue sharing agreement where uh, large tribes who operate large casinos have to give some of that revenue to the smaller tribes or tribes that don't operate casinos at all. Mm-hmm. So interesting that there's uh, a, a bit of a split there. It sounds like most tribes are, are in favor of Prop 26, uh, but a few for Prop 27. But then you also just mentioned that there are some uh, untruths in all the ads that have uh, come out for both of these initiatives. And I mean, I don't consume a lot of media other than working in media for shows like this, but uh, it's pretty hard to avoid all the ads online and elsewhere. Uh, what are some of the claims that really aren't quite true that have been put forth in these ads? Well, I think the one about solving homelessness is definitely the most glaring. Um, um, Other ones are that um, sports betting companies will send 90% of profits out of state, which is ultimately true. I mean, these companies are are based out of state and um, they're going to be making a lot of revenue, whereas tribes 
Um, they also make a lot of revenue and have a near monopoly on this industry, but the revenue that they make goes back into supporting tribal government for um, schools and other social services and just supporting the economic well-being of the tribe. And, you know, Native American tribes in California have a, this really troubled history, and it's historically been the way that many of them have been able to uh, support themselves. So, those are the main two. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, well, that does it seem like one side is, seems a little less truthful than the other when it comes, you know, between 26 and 27? Little, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, I think what's at stake here and what California voters should really be, think about, be thinking about when they vote on this is do they want sports betting? Because if neither of these pass, there will be other attempts in the future to make online sports betting legal. It's not like this is never going to come around. It's a question of who is able to control it and who profits from it. So mm-hmm. if you think that online, that uh, national private companies should have a sh- access to this huge market and be making a lot of money and, you know, give some of it back to the state, then I think, you know, that Prop 27 is where you stand. If you think that um, California Native American tribes should continue to be benefiting from this industry now online um, that and, and not in person, then either Prop 26 or um, even the San Manuel Band of Mission Indians has a plan to um, put a proposition in 2024 that would be more of the tribes initiating uh, their version of online sports betting. So I think um, California voters should really be thinking about that when they look at these props. Yeah, so the floodgates have really opened then, uh, just starting with these two. It sounds like there's maybe more to come. I wanted to ask you, I want to ask you a bit more about the, the revenue for tribes, as as you mentioned, that, you know, they've been uh, historically dispossessed from their land, uh, you know, decertified as tribal entities. Uh, but what are they doing now with the revenue and are non-gaming tribes getting any access to uh, to gaming revenue or, or would they under the under either of these propositions? No matter what, there is inequality among tribes. There are tribes that make uh, hundreds of millions of dollars um, with their with their gambling cent- uh, with sorry with their casinos, um, and then tribes that aren't federally recognized or are federally recognized and don't have the ability to to have casinos and uh, create revenue for themselves. So there is this sharing agreement, but it's. At the end of the day, it's not a lot. So, and that's why I think you're seeing um, some tribes support Prop 27, but the vast majority of tribes do want to see the industry continue to be dominated by tribal governments. I think that is definitely where the majority of them stand. Um, just because, it, like I said, it really has been this way for tribal governments to support themselves and offer schools and health clinics and um, all kinds of social services that previously they had to rely on whatever state and federal benefits were available. Um, So that's where most of them stand Mm -hmm. as far as my reporting has showed me. And what about enforcement of of either of these propositions? How would that work? Um, in-person enforcement is easier to do just because you can physically check an ID. In the Prop 27, the online sports betting proposition, 
it says that there will be measures to prevent minors from placing bets in gambling. But just naturally, that seems like a more difficult thing to do. Um, and the Prop 20, sorry, the 2024 measure that uh, some tribes are thinking of floating, the way they would want to do it is that um, people who want to place bets would have to come in, show their ID, and then place bets online, which is not something that the uh, private companies, the DraftKings and the FanDuel have talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a whole new world of the online gaming that has to be regulated. Right. Uh, well, your your paper, the Sacramento Bee, came out against both of these propositions, arguing that this is a policy that our legislators should be deciding and not the voters. I saw the San Francisco Chronicle had a similar editorial that maybe they were sharing an editorial there. But what, if anything, is the role of state legislators here? Well, I just want to point out to listeners that editorial is very separate from reporting, which I'm sure they know. But um The space for the legislature, you know, I uh, Prop 27 wanted to go to the legislature, but I think tribes historically have had more success going directly to voters on some of these issues. Like in 2000, that was really uh, what opened the floodgate, the floodgates for California tribes to be able to start opening casinos with Vegas like gambling in the first place. So there is a history of tribes going to voters rather than the legislature. But we do know in California that when you have very confusing ballot propositions that, you know, have all these convoluted different interests, that people tend to vote no when they're confused. And if both neither of these pass, um, then we can expect to see more things on the next ballot or maybe in the legislature if they both pass. Um, It might go to the courts uh, to decide, you know, whether which one gets the most votes and that's the one that's implemented. So this is definitely not the end of the story. Well, I was going to ask about what happens if they both pass. And so is that the uh, the inevitable result? This is going to have to go to the courts and then it's maybe the highest vote getter wins or can they both win and, and become functional? How does that work? Prop 27 says in their proposition language that both can exist, um, but the tribes would definitely oppose that. Uh, I think that they there has been reporting um, that they would likely, you know, file suit to make sure that um, tribe that betting companies weren't able to actually start on this business immediately. So. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it would look like in addition to going to the courts. Mm-hmm. And then if, if one of them passes, is it still feasible for the Sam Manuel band of Indians to put a ballot initiative in a couple of years the way you mentioned, or were, I mean, is this going to be the end all be all, or is this just going to be the first step in multiple new initiatives coming forward? It seems like the first step, because even if 27 passes, I think you will see those legal challenges from tribes um, who knows how those will fare But if 26 passes, that definitely leaves the door open for, you know, another uh, ballot initiative or some other kind for tribes to step into the online space, which I think is what many of them are hoping to do. And last question, what are the odds, no pun intended, that uh, either one of these is going to pass? Have you seen any any polling on this? Um, The last polling showed that 27 wasn't doing very well with voters. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, But there was, um, I did see that most editorials 
like the ones that you saw in the Sacramento Bee are leaning against it. I think there's this general feeling that propositions like this aren't the best way to make policy um, because they're so heavily dominated by these special interests that come to the table with the record amounts of fundraising. Like there has been $470 million raised and spent on these campaigns so far, which Mm -hmm. is an all-time California Mm -hmm. ballot initiative and national ballot initiative record. So, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and I'm sure somewhere someone's betting on which one of these is going to win, Uh, but we're going to unfortunately have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us, Ari Plotka, the Sacramento Bee, for explaining Props 26 and 27. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I hope it was helpful. Absolutely. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk about emissions and sustainability in California's dairy industry. We'll be joined by creamery owner and dairy farmer Albert Strauss and environmental policy advocate Jamie Katz. That's right after this break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about the environmental impacts of California's dairy industry and some potential solutions. So do you have questions about the dairy industry's climate footprint? Are sustainability concerns a priority for you when you choose dairy products? Give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So reducing methane emissions is key to meeting California's greenhouse gas targets. And methane, for those of you that don't know, is considered a super climate pollutant, um, possibly 25 times more powerful than straight old carbon dioxide. So it's very critical that we reduce these short-lived but powerful super pollutants like methane. And California's sizable dairy industry, which has 1.7 million cows and provides about 20% of the nation's milk, alone accounts for 45% of the state's human-caused methane emissions. So the state has set ambitious emission reduction targets for these short-lived climate pollutants by 2030, as well as carbon neutrality for the state by 2045 and legislation that just passed last month that was signed by the governor. The state also has financial incentives for farmers to adopt new technologies to capture methane and to practice techniques that would curb emissions. But we're currently on track to achieve just half of our target emission reductions for 2030. So we're going to dive into the science and the policy around emissions in the dairy industry and the ways that California's dairy farmers and policymakers can create cleaner farming practices. So we're pleased to be joined by Albert Strauss, who's an organic dairy farmer and the founder of the Strauss Family Creamery based in Sonoma. Welcome to State of the Bay, Albert. Thank you. Thank you. And we're also Also pleased to be joined by Jamie Katz, a staff attorney at the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability and works on environmental justice issues in the state's Central Valley. So welcome, Jamie, to State of the Bay. Thank you so much and good evening. So let's just start with the basics and then we'll get deeper into the work that uh, that both of you do. So, Albert, let me start with you. What are some of the main ways that livestock generate methane emissions and what are some of the tools that we have to curb these emissions? Well, I think I have to kind of go into my history and, and what who we are. Um, so um, 
my dairy and creamery were the first certified organic dairy and creamery west of the Mississippi River, the first 100% organic creamery in the United States. And since then, uh, we have 12 farms supplying our creamery in Marin, Sonoma County. Uh, 85% of the dairies in Sonoma and Marin County are certified organic. The average size our herd is about 250 cows. And um, so our mission is to sustain family farms in Marin, Sonoma County by providing high quality, minimally processed organic dairy products and help revitalize rural communities through education and advocacy everywhere. My vision is to create an economic, economically sustainable uh, organic dairy farm model that is good for the planet and our communities while providing high quality food locally and regionally. So um, you asked what is the, what is the problem? I think that, you know, farms, um, dairy farms have been historically um, more concentrated and less environmentally friendly. And I think that organic farms are addressing the climate issues and we have a goal to be carbon neutral on my farm by the end of next year. And I can go into those details in a minute, but um, yeah, well, well, let me ask you what, what do you, and you're in the farms that you have, where do you see the biggest challenges? Uh, where, where are, what are the biggest sources of the methane coming out of the livestock that uh, through the, through the farms that you work with? Well, it, it's interesting. I wouldn't say they're challenges. I would say they're opportunities. So for so we have uh, four methods that we're or four practices that we're implementing to become carbon neutral by the end of next year on my farm and expand it to the other farms supplying us by the end of the decade. Um, first thing is we have a methane digester for the last 19 years that takes the waste from the cows, the manure, um, and captures the methane gas that's produced to produce all electricity for the farm. And last year we t- took advantage, well, we collaborated with BMW to take advantage of the low co- carbon fuel standard in California, which incentivizes renewable electricity and pathway to electric vehicles. And so we're creating an alternative income source for dairy farmers by selling their carbon credits and take and addressing a, a methane emissions that's 84 times detrimental on a, on a 10-year basis, a uh, short-term basis uh, than carbon dioxide. Second part is we were the first um, first first farm, no, excuse me, we collaborate UC Davis on feeding red seaweed to dairy cows that uh, reduce has the potential of reducing enteric methane from cows that belch us, not the farts from cows, up to 95% mm-hmm. and did the largest and longest, longest trial, first trial in the United States last summer um, and are going to have a supply for our farm by the second half of next year and uh, expand it uh, further. So between those two practices, we'll have an 80 to 90% reduction on methane emissions. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is we are we are the first dairy in the United States to have a carbon farm plan. It's also been branded as regenerative farming, where by adding compost to the land, using animals to rotational graze, you are um, pulling carbon from the atmosphere and putting it back in the soil through photosynthesis. And so the more grasses and crops that you grow, the more you're sequestering. And it's being recognized internationally as one of the only ways to reverse climate change rather than reduce it. And my assertion is livestock have an essential role in reversing climate change. And then the fourth part and final part is that uh, we're, we've got, we're getting off fossil fuels. So 
uh, seven years ago, I put together a fully electric truck to feed our cows that's powered by the cow's waste. And last year, we uh, converted a full-scale John Deere loader to electric as well. So mm -hmm. between those four practices, our farm will be carbon neutral and by the end of next year and have an equal or lower carbon footprint than any plant-based dairy alternatives. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you got into, uh, I think, two of the, uh, the big sources of methane emissions, the, those enteric emissions that you mentioned, the, the belching and not the cow farts, which you often hear from, uh, from critics of, uh, of any effort to try to address these emissions from livestock, but also, of course, the manure. And I, I just wanted to follow up, since you mentioned turning manure into electricity. Can you explain a little bit how that technology works? So um, the bacteria that digests the manure, it's an anaerobic. Uh, um, well, in the 70s, we were, we were required to put lagoons in to, to capture any of the manure that's from when the cows are in a confined space, either milking or eating or in the wintertime laying in the barns so that we wouldn't contaminate the waterways of the state. But by requiring those lagoons, they didn't address air quality. So the lagoons go anaerobic. So since 2004, I have a, a I put a cover over the lagoon and the bacteria that digest the manure give off methane gas. So I'm capturing that methane gas through on a, under a cover uh, that's floating on the pond or the lagoon. And that methane is used as a fuel in a combustion engine that uh, that um runs a generator and we capture the heat to to um to heat water and and use it for washing equipment in our on our dairy all right great well thank you for explaining that let me bring jamie katz into here uh into the discussion as i mentioned a staff attorney at the leadership council for justice and accountability so jamie what do you see as the scale of the California dairy industry's effect on climate and the, the local environment? And recognizing that Central Valley is, is a very different kind of environment than what uh, Albert is describing potentially in the North Bay. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. So, you know, Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, we works, work alongside about 30 communities, both in the San Joaquin and Eastern Coachella Valleys. So many of the communities that we work alongside in the San Joaquin Valley are low-income communities of color located near some of the largest dairy facilities in the state. Um, so we're talking about often thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of animals. Um, and so, of course, you know, livestock methane, uh, livestock account for more than half of the state's methane emissions. Um, but in addition to that, you know, the San Joaquin Valley is out of compliance with federal air quality standards and these, you know, factory farms emit a quarter of the, of the region's volatile organic compounds emissions, uh, which contribute to ozone. They emit two-thirds of the region's ammonia emissions, which uh, are a key ingredient in fine particulate pollution. Um, and so these are having demonstrable impacts on people's lives. We're talking about contributions to asthma, um, heart attacks, strokes. You know, a child who lives in Fresno County is four times more likely than a child from Santa Clara County to have to go to the hospital because of difficulty breathing. Um, in addition to air quality impacts, um, you know, the, the Central Valley dairy industry itself did a study which found elevated levels of nitrate below every single dairy that they studied in that, that they reviewed in that study. And nitrate has been shown to contribute to cancer and blue baby syndrome in addition to quality of life impacts. So 
residents that we work with who live near these facilities report consistent sort of very serious odor and fly impacts um, that are that are persistent. So it's so again, there you know the these facilities are significant contributors to to greenhouse gas emissions in the state, but also have significant localized impacts. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, what is the state doing, if anything, to try to address uh, some of these challenges? What are the kind of current policy policies out there that you see in effect and that you would like to see bolstered? Yeah, so you you mentioned it earlier in the segment. Um, so currently, California, through a bill, SB 1383, which passed in 2016, which set uh, uh, reduction targets for a number of sectors, including livestock methane. However, crucially, this bill does not allow California or the Air Resources Board to directly regulate those greenhouse gas emissions until 2024, and even then sets a number of barriers toward um, between um, direct regulation, um, including that it be found to be economically feasible. And so instead, what California has implemented are a number, well, first of all, has spent hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars building out um, anaerobic digesters and, you know, upgrading uh, of that gas and pipelines um, in order to facilitate this um, and created an incentive structure, including the low carbon fuel standard, um, which has made it... um, you know, made it into a, a profitable thing to produce, um, you know, what we, we call factory farm gas. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of controversy over these dairy digesters. Can you explain a little bit about how, you know, many environmental justice advocates have been viewing these dairy digesters? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, there's a few concerns. And I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, one, they, they don't address localized impacts. So when we're talking about a scale of thousands or tens of thousands of animals, it doesn't address localized, um, you know, water contamination. It doesn't address air contamination because even if you have something to cover the uh, the liquefied manure lagoon, which again is the most polluting way to to process this sort of volume, we're talking acres, large lagoons. Um, it doesn't address upstream emissions, so that of enteric emissions, also doesn't address emissions that come from, because once they're done digesting this manure, it's still applied to cropland. um, And so that's still releasing ammonia emissions, that's still releasing nitrates into into the ground. Um, So there continue to be those localized impacts. You know, we hear from residents that are near these facilities that have a digester, that there are still odor and fly impacts. Um, But in addition, the you know, the, the methodology that California uses to, to see these, the production of factory farm gas as a climate benefit is a overly narrow calculation that doesn't look at those upstream emissions, doesn't look at enteric emissions, doesn't look at the emissions that come from applying that manure to the cropland, um, and doesn't fully account for the fact that when you produce this gas, um, you know, for example, so it's, it's also being used, um, being injected into the gas pipelines. And in order to do that, it needs to be chemically equivalent to that of natural gas. And so when Mm -hmm. you combust it, it has many of the same, both climate and localized air impacts that fossil gas produces. And so Mm -hmm. for all those reasons, we're very concerned about more of an incentive, sort of the incentive-based approach that California has chosen. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I want to also let listeners know this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing the environmental challenges and opportunities in the dairy industry. And we're joined by Strauss Creamery founder Albert Strauss and environmental justice advocate Jamie Katz. We want to hear from you if you have questions about the dairy industry's climate footprint. Are sustainability concerns a big priority for you when you choose dairy products? Do you have ideas for how the dairy industry could potentially reduce its impact? We'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at klw.org or find us on Twitter where we're at State of Bay. Albert, let me go back to you. We just heard Jamie describe some of the concerns and potentially objections to dairy digesters. What's your response to to those concerns about the use of dairy digesters at, at California's dairies? Well, I I I understand his concerns, and it is an issue in the Central Valley. I think there's a big distinction between um, small scale organic dairies that are, are required to have their cows on pasture where there's not methane emissions and the manure doesn't go through a anaerobic process uh, and these small, a bigger, you know, hundred times bigger uh, scale farms that are in the central Valley. The, some of the observations or the, uh, um, the comments that um, Jamie said didn't ring true to me. I mean, we've had a methane digester that, has uh, minimized odors and reduced fly populations on our farm. Um, and it's very noticeable, the difference. Um, the ammonia and, and uh, nitrates are not, you're, by, by having the methane digester, you actually eliminate the, the, the um, ammonia. And the nitrates are, are we don't, we're still working on the science on that, but it's, it seems to be that, the digestion of the manure actually makes it more available for plants. So if you have enough land to, to, to spread the manure on for organic farms, manure and compost are the legal um, fertilization of, of pastures and crops. So it's, it's an essential part of our farming system. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It, not applied and not processed correctly and not having enough land to spread the manure on or the, uh, the, um, you know, the manure on is, it can be problematic and it has been problematic. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Um, well, I and, thank you, Albert, for, for explaining that sounds like from your perspective, then that there are benefits beyond just reducing methane from these digesters. Just Jamie quickly back to you. What, I mean, do you see evidence to, to sort of support what Albert is describing, that there are benefits potentially to the groundwater impacts and and the things like odor and, and flies? Yeah, I mean, I think Albert really hit the nail on the head at the, in, you know, in the beginning of his, his comments that, you know, when you're talking about a few hundred cows versus several thousand or tens of thousands of animals, it's just a fundamentally different situation. I obviously can't speak to the operations on his facility and the impact, obviously, believe that it has had that that impact on 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 his farm um what i can tell you again from working with residents who live near these facilities and have lived there for decades that they have not reported any meaningful change in their water quality in their air quality in the odor or the presence of flies before and after the installation of this equipment 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, appreciate that. And let's go to the phone lines now. We have Matt dialing in from San Mateo. Matt, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you very much. One thing that has always uh, eluded me regarding the production of methane by cattle is I just wonder, like here in, in the coastal range of California, there used to be a bunch of pronghorn and elk, and there were natural ungulates that grazed the, the grasses. Did they create a whole bunch of methane from their manure and their belching and their farting? I mean, are, are cows especially worse than, than other ungulates? Uh, I don't get that, and, and I've missed what uh, the farmer said he does for the belching. If you could go over that again, that'd be great, too. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt, for, for that question. I think it's a great question. Albert, uh, let's start with that first question around, are cows more prone to emitting methane than other herbivores? Well, I, the the manure part of it is because of the modern ways that the um, state has required these uh, these lagoons that go anaerobic. There are ways to keep it aerobic that wouldn't produce methane from the manure. Um, but to, to protect water quality, that's what the state came up with through the Regional Water Quality Control Board and the uh, state EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so so they don't naturally produce more. It's more the way we have regulated well, livestock. Right. And, and milking cows take a lot more energy, a lot more. They're ruminants. So they're rumen, the byproduct of the digestion of the fibers and the, and the feeds give off methane gas. And that's why this red seaweed this one type of red seaweed um, actually has a, a, a chemical and called bromoform that chemically reacts with the, the microbes in the in the stomach. Instead of giving up methane, they give up hydrogen. So well, yeah, so Matt wanted you to expound on that a bit, and it's a really intriguing potential solution, right? That if we add in seaweed, that we could potentially reduce those enteric right. emissions. Can can you just describe a bit about what what's going on there, yeah. and what the feedstock, sure. how we would get that feedstock together? So um, by feeding less than a quarter pound in a forty-five pound diet, you can get up to ninety-five percent reduction in the methane emissions, enteric methane emissions. Um, and so what we worked with, it was a spinoff of the UC Davis trial, the company called Blue Ocean Barns, that is growing it in tanks on land in Hawaii and in San Diego. And um, so because we didn't, we needed to be certified organic and we needed to be, we didn't want to be harvesting off the oceans. So we, they have tanks on land, so we're not... Um, destroying the ecosystem in the oceans. Um, but by feeding this certain variety of red seaweed, they, they, they tested a bunch of different seaweeds in at UC Davis, and this had the biggest potential of up to 95% reduction. Well, Does really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a fascinating uh, potential innovation there. And Jamie Katz, let me ask you what, what you would like to see done on this issue of uh, methane emissions from dairies in California? What are what are some of the policy asks that you and other environmental justice advocates are, 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 are pitching to policymakers? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally what we're looking for is for the dairy industry to be treated like other significant contrib- contributors 
to greenhouse gas emissions in California, which is to be directly regulated. So I think that would be the, the first piece. I think the second piece would be to ensure that those regula regulations acknowledge and address localized air and water quality impacts pollution. And then I think more specifically, we would call for uh, you know, this gas, factory farm gas, to be excluded from the low carbon fuel standard um, because of the impacts that we're seeing in the San Joaquin Valley and the sort of incentive that it's creating to further concentrate dairy herds and to perpetuate sort of the most polluting manure management practices. Um, and, you know, at a, you know at ideally to remove it entirely um, or at a minimum to revise some of the kind of analysis that's uh, making it so lucrative as part of that program. Mm -hmm. And Albert, let me ask you, you're doing a lot of really innovative things that I gather a lot of your peers in the industry are, are have not embraced. What would you like to see happen to see the kinds of techniques that you're engaging in scale, you know, beyond your business? So, yeah, I'm, what I'm trying to do is create this model of, of a, a farm and change the farming and food system in their in our society, uh, it's farmers have been forced to get bigger and bigger because the economics aren't there. People aren't paying the true cost of what it costs to produce the milk. And so that's why you're seeing these huge dairies on smaller pieces of land because they can't afford the land and, um, and, and just economics of scale. The one thing that isn't, happening these digesters aren't owned by the dairies they're owned by third-party investors that profit off these um selling the the the, uh, the carbon credits and selling the gas off so i it doesn't really make economic sense for farmers plus they have such a the the cost of these digesters is so enormous that they don't have a payback even if the farmer puts some money into it so most of them are doing through power purchase agreements and companies that are in, investor backed. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the solution is to regulate them more. I think it's, we, I'm trying to create a, a quality of, 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 of food and a farming system that's more economically uh, sustainable and sensitive and create a food source that's healthy for consumers. So mm -hmm. I, I, I understand the, 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 the friction and the kind of the, um, the different nuances to we, we trying as a society to make our food source cheap, but then on the other end, we, we, we uh, have huge impacts on our environment and our health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Jamie, you had just issued a call for more direct for direct regulation of dairies in, in California. Are you concerned, though, that this might push dairies out of state and then basically they're able to operate under much more lenient regimes from other states and, and Californians then are just buying dairy products that don't have any real sustainability benefits compared to what they might in California? Does that does that sound accurate to you or is that a legitimate concern? Uh, you know, it, frankly, it's something that we hear from representatives from the dairy industry yet to see that happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, point, point taken. Albert, do you have thoughts about, about the future for dairies in, in California and, and how they can coexist with these sustainability goals? I, you know, I think it's challenging for these large scale dairies to, to 
sustain. And, um, yeah, I, I, we've gone from, well, I, I know in the United States, I don't have it specific for California, but we've gone from 4.6 million dairy farms in the United States down to 30,000 to less than 30,000 today. They only expect 20,000 to survive next decade. So they, they're getting bigger and bigger and less of them on smaller land. So it's not a sustainable future. So we're trying to make small scale organic farms that have the maximized amount of pasture and build soil and produce healthy food as a solution and help revitalize rural communities, which we've lost. We've lost mm-hmm. all the rural communities. And so it's, um, we're trying to change that uh, uh, future and that paradigm. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Jamie Katz, for listeners that you know want to get involved and want to be able to support environmental justice communities or off on the front lines of some of the, the pollution impacts here, what do you recommend? Well, yeah, you can you can get in touch with, with us at leadershipcouncil.org um, to, to learn more about different efforts. And yeah, you can yeah, stay stay informed about um, yeah, stay informed on this issue. And Albert, any uh, last thoughts here for listeners that want to want to learn more or, or buy more responsibility in addition to buying Strauss products? I'm sure you'd mention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that when you're buying your dairy products, you're making choices and uh, from what kind of farms, where where the farms are supporting local communities and local farms is really essential to our future. And um it, the cheapest, I know it's challenging for people in this environment that everything's costing a lot more. And But um, know that when you're buying organic local dairy products, you're supporting local farms and local communities. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. That's Albert Strauss from Strauss Creamery and Jamie Katz from Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. I want to thank you both for joining us and also let listeners know that we're putting resources on our website at State of the Bay on KALW.org, including a report that my Environmental Law Center just released on this topic of agricultural methane emissions called Ahead of the Herd. So that's online. But thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up after the break, we'll hear my earlier interview with Jim Lee, veteran San Francisco firefighter and chairman of the rebranded First Responders Museum. So stay with us. Cruising down Presidio just past Bush Street is fire station number 10 with a big red 10 painted above its giant doors. It's not hard to miss, but what you might not notice is a tiny little museum tucked on its side, the San Francisco First Responders Museum. Run by the Guardians of the City, it's a collection of artifacts showcasing the history and heritage of San Francisco's firefighters and first responders over the last 170 years. Inside, you can find the first San Francisco fire hydrant, fire engines from the 1880s, and even a 1967 police cruiser a la Streets of San Francisco. So here to tell us all about the museum is veteran firefighter and the museum's chairman of the board, Jim Lee. So welcome to State of the Bay, Jim. Yeah, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. So as I understand it, this museum has been in existence since 1960. Can you 
give us uh, a sense of how the first museum came to pass? Yeah, it was the brainchild of uh, Chief William Murray, who, as a young child, experienced the earthquake. And uh, when he became uh, chief of the department, he decided that uh, it would be a good thing to create a pioneer museum, which at that time brought the history of the San Francisco Fire Department from its 1850 days to uh, the time that the museum opened in the the, uh, 1960s. We also have uh, some of the very first fire engines, and they're really beautiful, ornate machines. But it looks like there's no place to hook a horse up to some of those earliest models. So how did, in the old days, did they work and, and get these machines up and down the hills of San Francisco? That's That was the problem. Uh, volunteer fire companies were a combination of firefighting and social clubs. And so they would uh, purchase their own building. They would purchase their own uh, fire equipment. And being volunteers, they would uh, answer the calls of the city bells at that time. Portsmouth Square had one of the largest bells in the city, which also happens to be in the museum. And those, when the fire was discovered, uh, the bells would start to ring. There was no communication system other than uh, visual line of, line of sight. And so the volunteers would get into action. They would open the doors and they would pull these hand-drawn fire engines and fire pumps to the fire. And they, the prize went to the company that put the the water on the fire first. And the prize was uh, bragging rights. There was all volunteer and uh, that's how it worked until San Francisco eliminated the volunteers for a paid fire department. That was, uh, I'm going to say 1866. That's when the San Francisco fire department became a paid Department. Well, and they certainly needed the help, uh, both volunteer and then eventually paid, because San Francisco seemed like it just kept getting destroyed by fire. I mean, between 1849 and 1851, the city was destroyed seven times by fires. So what was going on? Why were there so many fires back then? And why were they so devastating? Well, the idea was that the, the city was growing faster than its uh, civic response to uh, police, fire, safety, etc. So when are you base yourself on a volunteer system, there's there's obvious great cracks and crannies in there. Plus, there was no adequate supplies of uh, water, et cetera. So it became a self-fulfilled prophecy over time. And after the city grew, after the, the gold rush of the 50s, it became quite obvious that this had to change. And so it was a matter of Manpower, consistency, and water. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the other artifacts or treasures that uh, people can find in the museum. What else is in there when they when they go into the museum? There are displays for the uh, San Francisco Police Department uh, horse uh, unit. There's a, a, a great display of the San Francisco Sheriff's Department and how it operates. There is also a pretty good display on how the dispatch center works. And there are some irreplaceable uh, hand pumpers from the 1850s and early 60s that were protecting San Francisco at the time. And I would surely recommend that people uh, take some time to 
few of early San Francisco this. Yeah, such a central part of San Francisco's history. And I, I mentioned some of the earlier fires from the 1900s, but of course, probably the most famous fire was the one that followed the 1906 earthquake, because it really was the fire itself that caused most of the destruction, not the earthquake. So can you describe a bit about how that fire came about? Well, on April 18th, 1906, at approximately 5.12 a.m., most people don't know that there was a mild foreshock that shook San Francisco. And 20, 25 seconds later, the great earthquake struck, and it lasted over a minute. And by by 6.30 a.m., there were 52 fires spread across the city, 52 in less than an hour. Wow. Uh, the, the, yeah, the quake, the quake destroyed all central fire alarm systems. It destroyed the telegraph system. It destroyed whatever telephone system was. So there was absolutely no communication system for the 585 firefighters that were working that day. And so when it commenced, when the fire commenced, it was pretty much everybody, all men, all women for yourselves, because you were on your own until such time they could figure out how and when to attack this great conflagration. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a tragic story. And I think it gets a little overshadowed because we talk about it as the 06 earthquake, not the the fire, but it truly was the fire that was the issue. And, And why couldn't they put the fire out? They finally put it out by, so backfiring on Venice Avenue at that time was a very large Boulevard and where the uh, Presidio soldiers came in and dynamited some buildings. There's a, there's a lot of great stories with regards to which building got dynamited and which one did. I guess there was a little hydrant on 22nd and Church Street that uh, became known as the Golden Hydrant, which on the anniversary of April the 18th, uh, the neighborhood and guardians of the city respond there at about eight o'clock in the morning, seven thirty, when the sun is rising, and everybody remembers those who were at that time at the nineteen oh six fire. Obviously, they were all passed, and a lot of their children and grandchildren come, neighbors come to remember what happened on that day, April the eighteenth, nineteen oh six. Yeah, it's a, it's a great spot, right? Uh, Dolores Park there up at the top in the corner. So definitely hope listeners can check that out. And in response to the earthquake and the fire, the city created a whole new auxiliary water supply system with the hopes that this you know would never happen again. Can you describe a bit about how that auxiliary system works? Oh, definitely. Um, in 1900, uh, uh, Chief uh, Dennis Sullivan was the chief of the fire department, and he went to the board of supervisors and requested $150,000 to start what he considered to be a necessity to protect San Francisco going into the future. And it was called the Auxiliary Water Supply System for San Francisco. And how it worked was that that it had a um, 10.5 million gallon reservoir on the top of Twin Peaks and through various piping and tanks, it would go all the way down to the bay through pipes and pumping stations uh, were created 
And along the waterfront, there are high pressure inlets where San Francisco's uh, two active fireboats can pump uh, large amounts of water through these uh, uh, manifolds. Today, the high pressure system is being extended. It is still in use. It is uh, the wonder of the firefighting world. And it is a absolute wonderful system. Yeah. So out of the ashes, we hopefully have a system that will prevent anything like that from happening again. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's Jim Lee from the San Francisco First Responders Museum. And if you'd like to learn more and see some of these artifacts, you can check out the museum by making your way down to Presidio Avenue between Bush and Pine. It's open any Thursday through Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. and admission is free. So thank you so much, Jim, for your work with the museum and for joining us on State of the Bay. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other shows, you can visit our State of the Bay page on KLW.org. If you have any questions or comments, let us know. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KLW.org. And join us in two Mondays. We're going to be off next Monday. We'll be back with a live show in two weeks. Tonight's show was produced by Sam Klein Markman, Wendy Holcomb, and Jillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week.